This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and our guest today hasn't washed her hair in weeks. She is not the least bit ashamed of that fact. I asked Eugenia Bone why she goes long spells without shampooing. The microbes that live on my scalp have like evolved to really take care of all the dirty stuff, you know, the oils and things like that. I mean, I do wash it periodically. Do you want to smell? Oh. Uh, it's, it's really, no, it's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not bad. No. It's not only not bad, it might even be good. Yeah. That's me and my microbes together. I do wash it periodically because I don't want the ecology to get so complex that I've got like spiders or something in there. So I do kind of bomb it back uh, to the beginning by doing a, a hair wash, but I'd say it's probably been, I don't know, four weeks. Four or so. weeks. The microbes are doing this for you. So yeah. this is journalist Eugenia Bone. She splits her time between Crawford, Colorado on the Western Slope and New York, where she has no fear of holding onto the subway pole with her whole hand. Germs be damned. <laughs> at age 55, Bone went back to school to study a subject she was terrible at, science, specifically biology. And it's because she sort of fell hard for microbes. She finds something mystical about bacteria, and her new book is called Microbia, a journey into the unseen world around you. We are recording this conversation in front of an audience at the Newman Center in Denver, and let's welcome Eugenia Bowen. Thank you. Thank you. All of us in this room are connected by microbes. To a degree, that's absolutely the case. I mean, we're constantly shedding skin, dead skin cells, and they're like rafts for bacteria. We're also shedding bacteria. And the closer you are to each other, the more homogenized those microbial clouds might be. And if we stay together in this room long enough, we become our own sort of community where all of our microbes are potentially uh, homogenizing together. Do you say stuff like this at dinner parties? I do. I do. I always say things like, oh, when you shook my hand, you just got some skin cell eating mites. Isn't that wonderful? And, and they, you know, they just don't share my, often they don't share my enthusiasm. I'd say people recoil. I want to go back to this idea that you grip the subway poles in New York without hesitation. And that when you drop food on the floor at your home in Crawford, there's no five-second rule for eating it. These are changes you made after going back to school. Yeah. Isn't this a surefire way to get sick? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. It really isn't. Because, like, take the subway pole, you know. I mean, New Yorkers will hold that subway pole with three fingers and and they'll wobble around in the train as a result. And I think you're more likely to fall by not holding the pole than getting sick by holding it with all your fingers. The truth is when they say, you know, you hold a subway pole, it's like shaking hands with a million people. Yeah, but they're not that much different from you. It's the same skin bacteria that you're shedding, that we all pretty much have. We're the same species. It's not a big deal. But if that person had a cold, wiped their nose, and then touched that subway pole... 
Well, I, you know, yeah, you, that's how, but the main way you get colds is from, you know, much closer contact, right? I mean, I suppose that's possible. I mean, of course it's possible. But there is these silly headlines for a while in New York City, plague on the subway, because some um, microbiologists had found some plague cell, you know, the, the bacteria that causes plague, you know, the black plague. And so all the headlines went nutso about that, and there's lots of pictures of rats in the papers and stuff. Well, you know, one plague bacterium is not going to do very much. Bacteria need, uh, they're really a plural organism. There needs to be a number of them in order for them to present virulence. In fact, one bacterium can't really do much of anything except divide if there's food. For there to really be any action, for bacteria to do anything, there has to be a community. You really want people to stop thinking of good and bad bacteria. Totally. It's really all about population dynamics. There is no good bacteria. There's no bad bacteria. In fact, the best analogy I can think for that is this story about Yellowstone Park that they taught us in biology class. So Yellowstone Park had wolves and elks and beavers and ducks and so on. Um, But the wolves were preying on ranchers' sheep. So the ranchers put pressure on to have the wolves removed. When the wolves were removed from Yellowstone, the elk populations went way up. They started to congregate around on the stream banks and overgrazed all the willows. So then the beaver didn't have the material they needed to build a dam, and so on. There was then no ponds for ducks, and you know, went on and on. So the moral of the story is elk aren't bad, but elk in the wrong numbers... That's trouble. And so if you take an organism out of an ecological balance, when you start fooling around with the population dynamics, then you have a good or bad situation, not a good or bad bacteria. Have you gotten sicker in any greater frequency since you've changed how you live? No. No. In fact, no. Not a, in fa- that's, a, you know, No. <laughs> I haven't gotten sick in a really long time, which is kind of amazing because there's been the flu in New York and my husband has gotten sick and my son has gotten sick and I took care of them both. No. I don't know, though, that my the fact that I eat food when it falls on the floor is the reason why. Right. We there might not be a causation there. Yeah. We do hear, though, about like flesh eating bacteria. Oh, yeah. In the news. Nasty. It's their presence. And they're probably here with us now. Yeah, yeah, there are probably some in your mouth right now. But Th- thanks for that. The problem is <laughs> the problem is is if they get into the wrong place, right? And are able to reproduce and, and grow in numbers. So you hear about every not every, but you hear about cases of flesh eating bacteria. But that's not the bacteria story to be afraid of. The bacteria story to be afraid of is antibiotic resistant bacteria. Hmm. And that's really on the rise, and that's a big deal. And we have some part in that, we humans. Yeah, we totally are doing it. This widespread uh, prolific use, the bacteria that survive are the ones that, are, that have the mutation and, and to survive the antibiotics. So natural selection is going to select those that uh, can survive that antibiotic. You don't sound like a hand sanitizer to me, either. No, not at all. I don't use any of that stuff Mm. anymore. I mean, I'll be, if I got really sick and with TB or something, I would 
be very grateful for an antibiotic. But I certainly don't use it to wipe up my counters. I mean, I, you could just wipe a counter, uh, just take the food that the bacteria need to multiply off the counter, just wipe it up, and that's enough. You don't have to kill the bacteria, too. You know, you just take away their food source, and they won't be able to multiply. Most of the DNA in our body, this blows my mind, is not our own. Right. Explain that. So you have trillions of bacteria living on and in you, and they all have genes, and all those genes are capable of coding for stuff. So if you're just counting genes, most of your genes are bacterial. We also have what appear to be ancient bacteria in our own cells. This is what allows us to breathe oxygen. Yes. Tell, tell me about this. For me, it was like such a beautiful story. Um, quite a few billion years ago, a bacteria figured out how to do photosynthesis and succeeded very well, and they oxygenated the atmosphere. Now, that created a situation. The ocean was full of cells, different kinds of cells. One cell engulfed another cell but didn't consume it. And that cell, that engulfee, could use oxygen for energy, which is what, you know, uh, respiration is. So that cell with the bacteria inside became like getting a house with solar panels. That little bacteria was like a fuel cell inside the greater cell. And it stayed. It became a permanent marriage. To this day, all of your cells almost all of your cells, have the remnants of that ancient bacteria still in residence inside the cell. And when you breathe in, your red blood cells are delivering oxygen to that little organelle, that remnant of a bacterium or something like a bacterium, uh, which is processing your oxygen for you, which is using that oxygen to make your baked potato into energy, to make you go. They're called mitochondria, and they're like, you know, when you do the parts of the cell in biology class uh, for the last 20 years or so, all the textbooks will describe how this mitochondria is an ancient um, whittled-down, genetically whittled-down version of a bacterium. And it's kind of interesting that the theory that this is based on, the endosymbiosis theory, was popularized by a scientist, Lynn Margulis, That theory was popularized the same year that MTV went live with 24-hour videos. So it's kind of amazing to think how new um, that discovery is, that in our most sort of essential parts, deep in our cells, resides the remnants of an ancient bacteria. And the term microbiome, the environment of microbes, wasn't even coined until 2001. You know, half the world is microbial. Um, Without a little microbiology under your belt, you can't know half of yourself. You've also described bacteria, microbes in general, as mystical. You know, I wonder if this has something to do with how cooperative bacteria can be. I mean, they can lend their abilities to one another. Yeah, Well, the way they have sex is pretty interesting. Before we get into spirituality, I mean, it's not sex, but it's like like how they share genes, right? So here's an analogy that was useful for me to get my head around it. So 
Imagine you're a bacterium, right, and you get a job in Switzerland, but you're lactose intolerant. So if you're going to be able to survive, because cheese is the main thing on the menu, you know, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have a hard time surviving. But if you shake hands with a cheese eater who can tolerate lactose, who can process lactose, then just that handshake would be enough to pass the gene on to you, and then boom, you're lactose tolerant. It doesn't end there. Let's say you shake the hand of a dog that is able to eat cheese, that is lactose tolerant. You'd be able to get the gene. So if you're the bacterium, you can get the gene by contact, this something called conjunction, with another bacteria of the same species, or you could pick up the gene from another bacteria of a different species. And there's more. If the cheese eater spontaneously combusts on a chair, <laughs> and then you sit in the chair, you can also pick up the gene for lactose tolerance. <laughs> This is the ability that bacteria possess. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why they're so successful. I realize that what you're doing for us is you are bringing a visibility, a visual quality to a microscopic, unseen world by using metaphors like cheese eaters. I wonder what kind of a challenge this was for you as a writer who has so often written about food, things you can smell and see and, and touch, how it was for you to try to bring this invisible world to something we could all grasp. It was so difficult. It was so difficult because, I mean, you can see what microbes do. Like if you go to the La Brere um, tar pits in L.A., you, know, you see those, those tar um, like bubbles, there's like burps. So that's gas that's produced by microbes that are living in the tar pits. But there's not, you know, a whole lot to describe. And as a writer, you use, you know, you always use your um, your senses and smell and touch and stuff. So I had to look for analogies. I I really found myself trying to express consistent paradigms. You know, where the same models were turning up over and over. How bacteria are acquired by human babies and seeds in similar ways to illustrate this consistencies in nature because nature is efficient. It's not like she invents the wheel every time she's going to drive to the mall. Once something is figured out, it gets repeated over and over again. And to me, that was miraculous. It was spiritual. It just made me feel connected to um, other people and other things. Uh, it moved me deeply. I do think people's awareness, in particular, of gut bacteria is growing. <laughs> Maybe they take a probiotic, eat yogurt or fermented foods. As you write, microbes may even regulate our mood. This may be why folks who suffer from depression and ADHD also tend to suffer from gastrointestinal problems. Right. So there's all kinds of, I mean, that research is just barreling along. So if you like put bacteria as a Google alert on your computer, forget about it. It's like <laughs> they're constantly, and they're so interesting. Of course, it's all like you know, new science and you know, bits and pieces, but definitely there is a lot of work happening 
um, in this idea that uh, if there is a dysbiosis, which means bad life or uh, your gut microbiome is not functioning the way you've evolved for it to function, then it can produce the series of effects that ultimately um, can affect mood. So, for example, if your diet is not feeding those bacteria in your gut that produce serotonin, and a lot of your serotonin is produced in your gut, something like 80%. That's so funny. I think of serotonin as a brain thing. Well, it is. And so that's a situation where there's a gut-brain axis, as it's called. You know, So if you're not producing serotonin or not producing it in enough quantities, then you know the idea is maybe it's affecting mood. We think of the appendix as a vestige, you know, something that gets taken out, uh, but it may be a savings bank for bacteria. Is that right? Well, yeah, that's what the, the idea is, which is pretty cool. So the appendix, it's like a little waiting room. Um, so if you get a um, cholera and it kind of wipes out your gut bacteria, then how do you recolonize those bugs that are part of your you know, symbionts, that are part of your evolutionary partners? And the idea is that they are hanging out in your appendix, It's like a little nursery or a a little um, waiting room for gut bacteria. I even heard one person who said that when baby gets a little gulp of mom's poop when baby's first born, that that might be where some of those early colonists come from. It's like mom's first gift, you know? (laughs) Well, you opened the poop door. Yeah, yeah. The poop door is a big one. So... Fair warning that this next question is scatological. You write, my dad is proud of his diet and very proud of his poops. Yeah, that he is. So you had him send one in for analysis. And and you did this too. We did. Quoting you from the book. For $100, you can find out who is living in your gut. Right. At that moment. Yeah. 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 Tell me about this. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So my dad is like an Italian-American, and he's just tough as a baseball mitt. I mean, he grows his own vegetables, and he, you know, shoots like the varmints in his garden with his rusty old shotgun, and he drinks his own—he's 91. He's very proud of his poops, mentions them frequently. Um, And so when I said, well, let's see what you got and do this (laughs) test, he— uh, he was really excited, you know, it was like a, he was going to take a test that he knew he was going to ace, you know? <laughs> so we did it, and it turned out that his, um, so first of all, these tests that you do are kind of interesting because it's really just a glimpse at one moment in time of what bacteria are present. You can't really say, okay, this is the bacteria composition of the different species and different phyla and so on that are always there. It's more like, you're, you know, you take a picture of people walking around in Times Square and you try to guess, well, that's who the population is. There's a lot of transients, right? So it's not really a, an a- accurate picture of anything except the moment. Nonetheless, there's some generalities that happen. And dad's turned out to be, like mine, very true of an industrial Western diet, and that is heavy on the bacteria that process carbs, Pasta, maybe. Pasta, maybe, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the bacteria that ferment fats, um, 
like uh, animal fats, that high-calorie stuff. And when I told my dad, you know, and I showed him the analysis, he was really disappointed. He was like, you know, I've got the same gut bacteria as the prime minister of France. You know, that's not, <laughs> that's not so great. But it's pretty much consistent. You know, he eats a lot of vegetables all the time, and he lives this really healthy lifestyle. And he's not super sterile. I mean, the reason why you don't want things to be so sterile is because you want to have a diversity of microbes kind of coming through you that gives you this kind of greater uh, toolkit to fight off uh, stresses that, that might come along physically in your life. His, I thought for sure he was going to have this much more varied gut bacteria because he doesn't live um, a very sterile life. Like just recently, he had to clear out a, a cabinet in his kitchen and there was this big vat of vinegar with a homemade mother in the bottom, and he'd lost the top, so it had all this dust and stuff, and I was like, Dad, we gotta let this go and restart it. So he goes, all right, fine. And I pour it out, and in the bottom is this little mummified mouse. Oh. <laughs> I was like, Dad! And he goes, that's what makes it good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, so, uh, you know, it's, it's sterility wasn't the thing. The point is, is that, you know, you'd, you'd have to Go to pretty far extremes, I think, to not be, if you're living in a Western industrialized country, to not have a certain bottom line gut microbiome. Back to how babies pick up their first microbes. Right. Really from mom. Yeah, really from mom. Uh Uh-huh. So when the baby is like squeezing through the vagina it picks up all of these bacteria that are typical in the vagina, especially right before labor starts. They're called lactobacillus. So the baby picks up all these bacteria, which migrate into the baby's gut and are important for that sort of first microbiome of the baby before it matures and changes some. The baby also picks up another key primary um, symbiont when she breastfeeds. And this one is very interesting because it's in breast milk. Breast milk feeds it. So the baby sucks, you know, nurses from mom and picks up the bacteria. And at the same time, the milk is feeding that bacteria. It's The baby's not digesting that milk. It's food for that bacteria. Oh, my God. And there's also the same, um, it's called B. infantis, the same uh, species is living on her, nip- on her nipples. I'm like circling, making a little circle gesture on my nipples. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, I realize that's got to be weird. But there's, like, um, uh, there's bacteria on the nipple itself. And the benefit of that is the bacteria, this, this B. infantis on the, on the nipple is also fights off is a, an antagonist of staph of infection. So, you know, it's got this dual role that it's playing. What about C-section births then? And I naturally think of moms who may not be able to breastfeed. Right. I think with C-sections, they're experimenting with how to administer microbes to the baby. Yes. So all, I mean, again, I have to like say all of this, this, the research that I report on is like where things are at at the time I reported on, but Stuff is changing and advancing fast and all the time. That's it. So when a baby is born by C-section, the bacteria that has, in studies, that has shown up in the baby's gut was skin bacteria. You know, that was just kind of floating around in the room. And that 
isn't really supposed to be there. I mean, obviously, it doesn't kill the baby, but it's. It, but that's where the, how the baby starts out with those kind of bacteria. So, what moms are doing now is that they're having the baby, their doulas or doctors swab the infant with their own vaginal bacteria, and they just rub it all over the baby, you know, and in their mouths and stuff like that in order to hopefully see that bacteria colonize the child. And it's a new thing. I, I don't think it's really, I don't know how typical is it, in, it is in hospitals. Um, certainly midwives are doing it. And certain practices, you know, are beginning to change. Like some hospitals still wash the vernix off the baby. Remember that, moms? You know, that like cheesy, waxy stuff, which actually is now, the UN will say don't, the, uh, I guess it's who, you know, WHO. It's World a, Health don't, Organization. Right. It's a, like, let's not wipe off vernix because it has uh, this dual role where, on the one hand, it, um, it protects the baby from pathogenic bacteria. Just like, you know, you put wax on a, uh, a lemon so that fungi can't attack it so it won't get moldy. You know, it's a sort of a similar kind of thing. Um, and also, this, that vernix has got fatty acids in it, which are food for bacteria that are uh, natural symbionts, good symbionts in the butt, in the gut, in the butt, in the gut. So, <laughs> <laughs> Strange fact, 80 million bacteria can be shared in a 10-second French kiss. Right. Speaking of how babies are made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the subject of our guts in particular, people get fecal transplants. Right. So the fecal transplant thing is a lot of people think, oh, you know, you can get a fecal transplant for just about any GI problem. But it's really only been proven effective with a, one particular kind of infection um, called C. difficile. And it's a terrible um, infection. It, it'll happen when people have been on antibiotics for a long time. You know, when you, when you go on antibiotics, it's like, it's like you're clearing a, a town of all the residents. You still have the houses. And then other things, other critters can move in. So imagine, you know, you've cleared your house, you've cleared your neighborhood of your tummy of all these organisms, there's some vacant spaces, the C. difficile moves in, but it can make you really sick. It can even be fatal. But the fecal transplant, it's like a miracle cure. It works really well, really well. And so it's just like a kind of like yellow water or brown water that gets sprayed around the inside of your, you know, colon, Although I think a pill is being uh, developed for it. And within a miraculous amount of time, a couple of days or something, that you're, you're up and about. And there's a tradition for that. The, in 4th century China, they, doctors would serve patients with diarrhea um, uh, yellow soup, they called it. <laughs> and even Jane Goodall noticed that uh, chimps with diarrhea would eat the feces of chimps without the diarrhea. Hmm. So I read this... Um, there was this small study, and uh, uh, I didn't read it because it was in German, but I, I heard somebody told me, explained it to me. And what these uh, researchers did is they filtered out all the feces, because the idea of a fecal transplant is, you know, you would get some healthy bacteria from a donor, and that would re- knock out the C. difficile and recolonize your colon, and you're good to go. So these researchers took all the bacteria, filtered it out. The only thing that was left was some molecules that those bacteria had produced and viruses. And they injected that in the patient, and it still worked. So what's so cool about that is the major 
predator of bacteria are viruses. And so maybe it's the viruses that are actually knocking out the C. difficile, this weedy-type bacteria that gets a, a, a foothold in some people's guts. You know, and the suggestion is that we could use viruses as an antibiotic. We could use viruses to fight uh, bacteria and bacterial infections. I mean, you know, there's a lot to work to be done. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to read it. Author Eugenia Bowen is my guest. She splits her time between Colorado and New York. Her new book is called Microbia. In her 50s, she became fascinated by bacteria and decided to go back to college to study them. We spoke in front of an audience at the Newman Center on DU's campus. I want to say this book, Microbia, A Journey into the Unseen World Around You, was a different kind of journey for you going back to school at age 55. You were often older than the professors. Yeah. (laughs) I was. It was weird. I think the only real ageist in the room was me, but I definitely had a lot of um, obstacles to surmount. Like, I was very worried about memorizing stuff. That was just a nightmare. And in biology, there's a lot of memorization, lots of terms. I was worried about tests. I was worried about, oh, even taking notes were a challenge for me. I'm looking at you because I'm remembering this sort of naughty story in my book about that. I don't know if I should tell it. I think that means you should, yeah. Okay, so it's going to be really quick, all right? So you know those marble notebooks that the kids did their, you know, assignments in? And my kid, Mo, who is... um, a very he he was a doodler, you know. So I would I had all these books that would have maybe three pages about the Trojan War, and that's it. And then there'd be some doodles in there. So I'd rip them off and I saved the books because it was a waste. And I was really happy to repurpose them when I got to college. But I really didn't know much about note taking. So I was I would write down everything the teacher said, everything to the point where I didn't even know what I was writing. It was idiotic. I couldn't even keep up. And so. Those notebooks, you know, they're kind of wide. And in our classroom, we had these chair desks, you know, the kind that fold up and cross your lap. And, they're na- and those are narrow, so I could only have one side of the notebook on my desk at a time. So I'm writing on the uh, left-hand page. Now, there's, I'm sitting next to other students, right? We all sat in the same seats every single class. It was a weird phenomenon. I don't know why we do that. But there's always, like, me and then this guy and this girl with um, uh, nose piercings down there. And so I was writing very carefully on the left-hand side, really paying a lot of attention. And I noticed the guy sitting next to me is sort of staring at me and staring at my notebook. And I'm like, man, I didn't really know what was going on. So I looked down. And on the facing page of my notebook, which was hanging over the edge of this desk, was this really detailed picture of a couple making love on a desk that my son had done in, like, 10th grade. And I looked at the guy. I was like, um, But he, did, he wasn't sitting next to me anymore. And the next, after that, he moved to another seat. <laughs> I was at this blank chair after that. <laughs> to my right hand. In these courses, it took you hours to read just a few pages of your textbooks. I mean, you would look up several words in a sentence to try to wrap your head around whatever the concept was. And I had you bring a sample of the kind of stuff that you had to digest. Will you just read? I mean, this is just a few lines of the... But this is typical. Um, Okay. The LAC operon consists of the genes that encode functions necessary to utilize lactose. 
beta galactosidase, lactose permease, and lactose transacetylase, plus the regulatory regions necessary to control the expressions of these genes. In addition, the gene for the LAC repressor is linked to the rest of the LAC operon and is thus considered part of the operon, although it has its own promoter. (laughs) I mean, that was like Greek to me. Oh, it was really so, so hard um, to tease out the um, the key whatever. idea of that <laughs> no, sentence. No, I mean, yeah. yeah, there's a scene in the book I just couldn't forget. You run across your son's old ADHD medication. Oh yeah, and you contemplate taking it to improve your academic performance. Yeah. What What did you All decide? Right, so let me tell you about ADD medication. It does help you focus, but not necessarily on what you want to focus on. <laughs> Which is really, I mean, I took it for a test. And I was not, and the whole time I was trying to remember the lyrics for this bizarre um, hymn that we sing in our mycology club called O Goddess of Decay. And I, you know, and I just was obsessed. I was trying to, re- and half my brain was busy trying to recall the lyrics. So, I didn't do not very helpful. well on the test. Okay, this microbial journey not only changed the way you live, how often you shampoo your hair, but it gave you a new understanding of all living things. And it seems that your great epiphany is that microbes are a physical connection between all living and non-living things. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back then really to the the beginning of us, very proto-us, Yeah. The, the first life on this planet. Yeah. And microbes make that possible. Yes. These microbes, the first ones, uh, made a living by getting food and energy from things that weren't living, like gases and minerals. There are still microbes that are doing that. Right? That's what microbes do. There are microbes that live in the most extreme conditions on this planet. Yeah. So what's so amazing is that so the microbial life is able to terrestrialize the elements of life, nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon, oxygen, so on. They're able to take that out of the non-living sphere and terrestrialize it so that it becomes accessible to all other organisms up the food chain. And that's a really profound thing to me, to think that these invisible organisms bridge what lives and what doesn't live. I think that's mysterious. Life started in the water, and you admit that when you used to think of early life on land, you pictured some prehistoric fish crawling onto shore and saying, you know, this isn't bad, I could live here. Uh, But you came to learn that that, in fact, was not true, Life on land begins with something really sexy, microbial mats. Oh, yeah. Microbial mats, yum. Pond scum. Pond scum. <laughs> yeah. It's the like first that scum. life on earth is not some mastodon by any means. It's, I know. It's this microbial glob. When I was in, high, in grade school, you know, it was the pictures of the sort of flippery fish crawling out of the the warm pond, and there was already, you know, trees and all that stuff. But what really happened is the microbial life, this complete ecology of microbes that 
We're doing in miniature all the chemical systems of the planet, photosynthesizing, capturing nitrogen, you know, fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere. All these systems were in place on these, like, slimy mats, which you've seen, like, in low tide, if you ever travel, you know, to the coasts, or even um, some around springs, you, know, you see these, like Yellowstone, you see this orange muck around the edges of the springs. Those are microbial mats. They can have complete ecologies, and the idea is the microbial mats wash onto shore, and they wash these ecologies that miniaturized the workings of the planet. And that's the proto-soil. That ecology is what turned the earth from a rock to a garden. And then stuff crawled out and, you know, <laughs> fish and lizards and eventually leading to, I don't know, Dolly Parton, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so. You spent a lot of time with a lot of people who are equally, if not more, fascinated by bacteria and other microbes as you, uh, including Dr. Sheldon Campbell, the singing microbiologist. Oh, give me a home where the parasites roam, where the worms play in cheerful delight, where the ova are shed and the larvae are bred and the pinworms crawl out in the night. You also met people <laughs> who make agar art. Oh, yeah. These are people who take bacteria and in Petri dishes try to grow the right color and pattern of bacteria to make like Van Gogh's Starry Night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's an exhibit you can go to in case you're curious. At the um, American uh, Society of Microbiology, there's an annual conference and and they have this agar art show. But you can also Google, you know, go on the internet and find some of the finer examples of agar art. You know, it's stuff like um, Dr. Fleming, who discovered penicillin, was supposedly very fond of making ballerinas by growing out, you know. So they grow out the bacteria in patterns, right? So he liked to make ballerinas. Bacteria, bacteria ballerinas. You met the folks behind the blog pondlifepondlife.com? Yeah. You just log on and you can see what is growing in the ponds of New York City. Yeah, they're just... Microbially. Yeah, things swimming around, little protists. They're like little hairy rowboats and stuff. They're wonderful, tiny, busy things. And it's so curious because it's a whole world. It's, you know, they're living out their lives, you know, in their own scale. So it's very... Ah, very provocative to think so much is going on that you can't see. I want to wrap up on the ultimate end, death. I can't get a fact from your book out of my head. Inside us right now are the microbes that could start to break us down if we passed away. You write, yes, we carry around laborers of our own decomposition. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we have a complete ecology, but we don't dominate with those kind of microbes when oxygen is coming in and all that. But when oxygen isn't coming in anymore and there's no immune system to, you know, keep back the microbes, the decomposer, that population increases and then spreads throughout the body and does its job. I mean, our own enzymes start the process, but the these bacteria go in and they eat the proteins in the cells, and then they produce these byproducts that 
include the nasty smell of death, and that attracts um, insects, and then changes the pH, and that attracts fungi. And um, so there's a, a lot. It takes a village. <laughs> Eugenia Bone, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Author Eugenia Bone, who splits her time between New York City and Crawford, Colorado. Her new book is Microbia, a journey into the unseen world around you. We'll have an excerpt at CPR.org. The conversation was recorded at the Newman Center on the University of Denver campus. And Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. Oh, give me a home where the parasites roam, where the worms play in cheerful delight, where the ova are shed and the larvae are bred and the pinworms crawl out in the night. CPR News has gotten a hold of documents that show the engineers who drive two commuter rail lines in Metro Denver have made serious mistakes, mistakes that have put the public in danger. Many operators on the A line to the airport and the B line to Westminster say those errors are due to technical problems and working conditions. Rail officials say the lines are safe. CPR's Nathaniel Miner talked with Mike Lamp. So what do these documents show? The documents are disciplinary records for the train operators. When an engineer makes a serious mistake, their driving certification is taken away. It's called a decertification. And the driver is either suspended or fired, depending on the incident. Do we know how many of these incidents have occurred? The records I have show there have been at least 24 decertifications since the A-Line opened in April 2016. I ran that by a railroad safety expert who said that's a very high number. For instance, let's take the Metra in Chicago. That's a huge commuter rail system, nearly 500 miles of rail, compared to Denver's about 30. And the Chicago Tribune reports that the Metra only had five decertifications in 2016. In Denver, most of the driver's suspensions for safety infractions happened within the first 12 months of the A-Line's operation. There are things like running a red signal, speeding, and even a couple of derailments in the maintenance yard. There were no injuries to the public in any of these incidents, as far as we know. Where did you get the records? I requested them from every public agency related to the rail line, and I asked the private company involved as well. They all turned me down, so I got them from another source. And while we don't have every decertification record, there are enough to show that there are some troubling patterns of operator mistakes on these two commuter rail lines. But you've confirmed that these records are authentic. Uh, As well as I can, yes. I called a bunch of engineers whose names are in these documents. And one of them is Jeffrey Brannon. He spent a decade working for freight railroads before he took a job at Denver Transit Operators. That's the subsidiary that operates the trains. Brandon told us his version of how he was decertified. We tried to check it with the company, and they turned down our interview request. In June 2016, Brandon was driving a train full of people from the airport to downtown, and his positive train control system, or PTC, started acting up. This is a high-tech safety system. So the dispatcher told him just turn it off. He made it to Union Station, where he was supposed to get a new train. Well, the dispatcher did not have another train ready and decided to send me out again without PTC. So Brandon left for the airport with the same train. He got to a spot on the line that's between two power sources. It's called a phase break. The trains are supposed to coast through it. Management says operators shouldn't even apply the brakes in these. But Brandon got a warning saying that there was an issue with a crossing gate up ahead. He had to stop before he got there. 
But he was in a phase break and couldn't stop his train. The very first thing that went through my mind was, I'm not going to stop at this crossing. I'm not going to stop at this crossing. I hope that, you know, no one attempts to go out in front of me. He got out of the phase break and tried to stop, but it was too late. His train slid into the crossing and luckily didn't hit anything or anyone. So the first thing he does is feel a big sigh of relief. And then the other thing that went through my mind is I now don't have a job. I'm going to be decertified. So what happened to Jeffrey Brannon? He was suspended for 15 days, which is standard for your first decertification. He didn't fight it because he just wanted to get back to work. But he says it really wasn't his fault. I wasn't speeding. I was going under the maximum authorized speed for that area. Um, But the speed was faster than what I guess it should have been due to the phase break being right there. Well, that is some story. How do you know that it is true? The documents I have back up the basic facts. I wanted to ask the company, Denver Transit Partners, about the specifics, but they declined my interview request. Seems like there are a number of factors that could lead to these mistakes. Right. In addition to Brannon, I spoke with four more current and former operators, and they told similar stories of systems not working and design problems. I also heard that there's constant pressure from management to keep trains running on time. Engineers say that can lead to mistakes. And secondly, there's the pay. A recent contract shows engineers start between $16 and $17 an hour. Compare that to the Rail Runner in New Mexico. That's a 100-mile commuter rail line that goes through Albuquerque and up to Santa Fe. Those engineers start at $37 an hour. And there have only been three decertifications on that line in the last two years. So is the Denver line having trouble keeping employees? Yes, according to the engineers I spoke with. When the A-line opened nearly two years ago, many of the operators had a lot of experience. They were furloughed from freight railroads. And many of those engineers have quit, partly because of the low pay. And I'm told that some of the newer operators don't have much experience at all. Are you seeing these issues across all of RTD's train lines? Well, it's important to note that RTD has two distinct rail systems. There's the A-line, the B-line, and the G-line, when it opens, that are heavy commuter rail lines. These cars go really fast, nearly 80 miles an hour. And then there's the light rail system. Those use smaller cars, and they go much slower. We did a story a few months ago about red signal violations on the light rail lines, so they've had problems too. And what does RTD say about all this? RTD spokesman Scott Reed says that any disciplinary and performance issues on the A-line are the business of Denver Transit Partners and the contractor that hires the engineers. DTO is uh, dealing with their employees in the manner that they see fit. And, um, you know, because they are DTO's employees and not RTD's, that is up to them. We um, do approve their overall plans but we don't uh, determine how they um, handle individual employees and what they feel is appropriate for disciplinary actions. Well, what about the contractor that employs the trained drivers? Denver Transit Partners, like I said, declined my interview request. They did send a statement which said in part that they have, quote, safely and reliably carried over 10 million passengers. They also say their safety record is above the industry average and that the number of decertifications has dropped by half from 2016 to 2017. And that's true. Our documents suggest that there have been fewer engineer suspensions in the last year or so. Okay, thanks, Nate. You're welcome. CPR's Nathaniel Miner talking with Mike Lamp at CPR.org. See some of those safety records and learn more about this story. 
And that's Colorado Matters for today with special thanks to Matt Hers and Nathan Heffel. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.